0: You do, if you do not have a handout yet, handouts are on the music stands in the back. There's pens back there if you need them to help you with taking notes. But glad to be back with you guys tonight and looking forward to our study together. So let me open us up in a word of prayer before we jump into our attribute tonight. Father, we're thankful that you have revealed yourself to us. And God, I pray tonight as we think about your attributes that you would once again give us a sense of awe and wonder at who you are but the fact that we get to know you. So I pray you'd have your way in our midst tonight as we look at your word. I pray you'd shape us and form us to who you desire us to be, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, last week we tackled an attribute that if you weren't with us last week, this was not one we typically talk about, and that was God's jealousy, that his intense love for his people and how he demands our love in return. Now, tonight we're going to follow with another attribute we do not hear talked about a whole lot. This is not an attribute you'll hear any song on Christian radio about. It's not an attribute that makes it in most of your devotional books. It's not one that there's a lot of Christian literature on, and that's the attribute you see there at the top, God is wrathful. And tonight we're talking about the wrath of God. And so just honestly, when was the last time you heard a song about God's wrath, read devotional about God's wrath, heard a sermon on God's wrath, had a Sunday school lesson on God's wrath? This is not an attribute that we typically think of, but that we need to think of. To get us thinking tonight, there's a quote here on your handout from A.W. Pink. And he said this, and I think this is so true. He said, It is sad indeed to find so many professing Christians who appear to regard the wrath of God as something for which they need to make an apology, or at least wish there was no such thing. While some would not go as far as to openly admit they consider it a blemish on the divine character, yet they are far from regarding it with delight. They like not to think about it, and they rarely hear it mentioned without a secret resentment rising up in their hearts against it. And that was an interesting word that caught my attention there. They don't think about it with delight. Do we see this attribute of God with delight as a good attribute of God, as, is all our, his, as are all of his attributes? So He's thinking about Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 39 to 41. This is God speaking. See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. Now notice this, I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver Out of my hand. Now just pause right there. We like to think about half of those things, right? We like to think about God making alive and God healing. But God says, I do both. I can kill and I can make alive. I can wound and I can heal. Why? He goes on in the verse. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. So this is a God who is a God of wrath. So how do we think about God's wrath? How do we biblically think about it? Let's turn the page there. Before we even jump into the scriptures about it, first of all, realize it is good for us to consider God's wrath. Though it's an attribute that gets neglected and not talked about much, it is a good thing for us to consider it. Why? Two reasons. First of all, we must see God as he's revealed himself to be, not who we want him to be. Friends, in our culture, we have a lot of people who say they're followers of Jesus, but they have a God of their own imagination. They want a God who just loves and doesn't really care about holiness. And they've kind of imagined who they want God to be. We want God for who he really is, not how we imagine him. Here's another quote from A.W. Pink who really does a good job on this topic. Pink says, there are more references in scripture to the anger, fury, and wrath of God than there are to his love and his tenderness. I haven't that for myself, but I believe Pink is right on that. And so the question for us, that was not on your handout, but for you to consider tonight and the weeks to come, why do we only focus on God's love in our culture? If there are more talk, talk in Scripture of God's anger, wrath, and fury, why do we neglect that to only talk about God's love and His kindness and His patience, which are His attributes too? We need to see God for who he's revealed himself to be. Second of all, Scripture instructs us to consider this part of God's nature. Romans eleven twenty two. Note then the kindness and, notice the word end here, and the severity of God. Again, friends, our heart tendency wants to talk about the kindness of God, but Scripture instructs us to consider both the kindness and the severity of God. And we put ourselves in place of peril and harm if we only look at part of God's nature, not all of God's nature. So as we consider the goodness of thinking about God's wrath, I want us to remember here we need to consider it in light of the unity of God. If you think all the way back to the very first week of our study, God is unified. He is fully all of his attributes all of the time, and all of his attributes help us understand his other attributes. So we need to consider God's wrath in light of his holiness, in light of his justice, in light of all of his attributes in in him. So notice what Matt Chandler says. He said, "...to discount the enormity of God's severity as if we aren't really that bad and really deserve mostly kindness, is to discount the enormity of God's holiness. And what if that's one reason why we don't think about this attribute of God so much? We're discounting his holiness and holding ourselves up as basically good. Therefore, we don't understand why in the world God would need to be severe. So what is God's wrath? Let's try to make an attempt at define. Now, generally, not just with God, but wrath in general means intense anger and indignation. So intense anger and indignation. Now, let's apply that to God. What does it mean if God is a wrathful God? Wayne Grudem says it well. He says, God's wrath means that he intensely hates all sin. That's a great foundation starting point for us, that God hates sin. In his holiness and his perfection, he has to hate sin. But it's more than just his hatred of sin, he acts on it. This is where J.I. Packer brings it out well. God's wrath is God's resolute action in punishing sin. The Bible labors the point that just as God is good to those who trust him, so he is terrible to those who do not. So God hates sin and then he acts accordingly, his resolute action in punishing sin. Mark Jones in his book, God Is, describes well, God hates sin and inflicts punishment on sinners. And penitent, that means unrepentant sinners who reject God are the objects of his anger. And then perhaps the best definition I found of God's wrath is A.W. Pink again. He says it's the wrath of God. It says, eternal detestation of all unrighteousness. Now, this is a great phrase. It is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. I don't think I've ever found a phrase better than that. What is God's wrath? It's the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. It's the moving cause of that just sentence which he passes upon evildoers. Now, in light of that, where do we see this in Scripture? God's wrath, and what you understand, is seen in Scripture. As you hear me say most weeks, God's attributes are not something that we're trying to reason ourselves. They're revealed by God. God has shown us who he is, and this is part of his nature. There's no hiding of God's wrath in Scripture. There's no mincing of words in Scripture. It tells us who God is. He doesn't use subtleties to get around this. He describes himself as a wrathful God. God clearly makes this aspect of his character known. So turn the page. I want us to see this in several places. You're finding both the Old Testament and the New Testament. You've heard me say many times before, God does not change. He's not a God of wrath in the Old Testament. Then the New Testament becomes a God of mercy. He's always fully himself all the time. So no surprise, we see the wrath of God in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So let's start with the Old Testament. Exodus 32, the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them or they may make a great nation of you. Now this is when God has been giving the law to Moses. The people are building the golden calf and they're worshiping a God of their own imagination right there. And so you see God's wrath is burning against them. You see so much of those definitions in that one passage there, how God hates sin, including the sin of idolatry, his resolute action to punish that sin. This is again is God's holiness moved into action against sin. You see it in Deuteronomy 9 as well. Remember and do not forget how you provoked, notice that word, how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath. The Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. You see it in Deuteronomy 9 as well. This is a serious indictment as well. At Taborah, also in, it, in Massa, and at Kibroth Hattava, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and take possession of the land that I've given you, then you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God, and did not believe him or obey his voice. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. You see, it's in 2 Kings 22 as well. Go inquire the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord That is kindled against us. Again, notice that terrible indictment. Great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. And so there's the reason for the just wrath. People have disobeyed God's revelation, God's will to them. And then notice it from Nahum chapter 1. Notice how some of these attributes come together here. The Lord is a jealous, we talked about last week, he's a jealous and an avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. And keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is, but yet the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blooms of the bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth the earth heaves before him, and the world and all who dwell in it. It's this question: Who can stand before his indignation? the answer is no one. Who can endure the heat of his answer? And the answer is implied. No one can. His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks broken into pieces by him. But then notice where he goes next. The Lord is good. A stronghold of the, in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete, he will make a complete end to the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into Darkness. Now if you want a fun exercise later, reread this text and look for all the attributes of God you see in here. There's so much that we've been talking about all semester long for these 14 weeks. You see a lot of who God is in that one text in the six verses in Nahum there. But again, God's unchanging, so it's not just he's a God of wrath in the Old Testament. He is always a God of wrath. And so you see that in the New Testament as well. Romans chapter 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So once again, you see God's anger towards sin, is holiness moved to action. Colossians 3, we're told to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Why? On account of these, the wrath of God is coming, and these you too once walked when you were living in them. And this is a reminder for us, friends, God's wrath is always just. God doesn't punish Non sin. This is always a deserve. Wrath is always deserved when he gives his wrath. Hebrews chapter 3 as well. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, here's that word again I was provoked with that generation and said, so they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter. My rest, friends. That is a terrifying declaration of the Lord. I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And again, God's wrath is deserved. It is just. It is fair. This is not God being an unfair God. Rather, it's God being a very fair God and giving people what they deserve for their rebellion, for their sin. In the Revelation chapter 19. Now, this is about Jesus. And this is not the picture of Jesus that you typically find in the kids' Sunday school hallway, okay? From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he, again, this is Jesus, he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he, is, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is a picture for us of Jesus, the ruling king who is coming to execute God's wrath against all who do not believe in him, love him, and follow him. So let's try to draw some conclusions about God's wrath from that long list of scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, about his wrath. First of all, this is on page four, God's wrath is a good attribute, as all are them, friends. There's not good attributes of God and bad attributes of God. There's not positive attributes of God and negative attributes of God. Every attribute of God is a good thing, and this includes his wrath. Edwin Pink says as well, the wrath of God is as much a, notice this word, a divine perfection as is his faithfulness, power, or mercy. Indifference to sin is a moral blemish. So again, we think of the wrath of God, the first word that normally comes to mind is not divine perfection, but that's what it is. His wrath is a divine perfection, just like his love or his mercy or anything else. You see, Wayne Grudem's description, sin is hateful and it is worthy of being hated. Sin ought not to be. It is in fact a virtue to hate evil and sin. So you notice these words, Pink says it's a divine perfection. Here, Grudem says it's a virtue. God is virtuous. He is perfect. He's divinely perfect. Therefore, he is wrathful in his view of sin. I love Packer's description here. J.F. Packer says, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead, I love this, a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. God is only angry where anger is called for. Even among humans, there is such a thing as righteous indignation, though it is perhaps rarely found. But all God's indignation is righteous. That's a great clarification for us, that God's, God's wrath is always righteous. It's divinely perfect. It's a virtue for him to hate sin. That leads to number two right there. God's wrath is related to judgment and to justice. God's wrath is only given To those who deserve it. There's never injustice on God's part. God is a just God. So God's wrath is only given to those who deserve to receive his wrath. Notice this phrase in Romans 2 But because of, and don't skip over that, because of your hard and impenitent, which means non repenting heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render each one according to his works. So out of the judgment, no one can say before God, God, you're being unfair to give me wrath. God is being very fair because we've sinned, and the reality is we all deserve His wrath. You all know well Romans three twenty for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, every single one of us deserves nothing but the wrath of God. God is just to pour out His wrath on anyone and everyone. Number three, though, God's wrath includes both present and future realities, and this is important because I think these kids miss a lot. When we think of the wrath of God, we miss the present part of it. So often, this is present and future. Both. First of all, people, are, people who are not reconciled to God are already under his wrath now. This is a present reality for them. that They do not know that. They are blind to it. That's why we need to plead with them with the gospel. John three thirty six. Notice the language here. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God, notice this, remains on him. That means it's already there. Yes, there is a future judgment coming, but for all those who do not know Christ, that they don't know it, they are already experiencing the wrath of God. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed. Now just pause there. This is present tense in the Greek in which Romans is written here. This means a constant revealing. The wrath of God is revealed and keeps on being revealed. This is the present tense reality for those apart from Christ. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth so those we, we know who are outside of Christ are already right now under the wrath of a holy God. But that doesn't mean there's not more in the future. Those people still will experience future judgment and future wrath. We saw it a minute ago, but look at Romans 2, 5 again. But because of your hardened and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself. Notice it's only day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So the people who are under God's wrath now and do not know it, the day will come when they understand they are under the wrath of God, because they will see God in his holiness, and they will understand their sin against him. Revelation gives us a picture of that as well. Then the king of kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, follow on us and hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And that's not the Sunday school picture of Jesus, but it shows us the very real judgment that is to come is more wrath comes on those who do not follow God. Mark Jones says it there on top of page five. God's wrathful judgment will only reveal itself in all its power in the future and the day of wrath. So God's wrath is already there, but there's a day coming when it'll be very clear to all and it'll be very obvious to all when it's revealed in an even greater way. And friends, let's just remind, remind ourselves here. This future wrath is not a one-time experience. There's people today who want to hold to the obliteration of people. They'll face the wrath of God, and then they're annihilated. There's no evidence in Scripture that. That's something that people come up with themselves to try to appease themselves on this. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Wrath in the Bible is not a one-time experience. It's eternal. Hell it is an eternal experience of the wrath of God. And there's so many places we can look to in Scripture, but just one of those is Matthew 13. This is the eternal fate, unending fate of all those who do not know Christ. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace and that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we need to understand as we talk about the wrath of God, this is a terrifying reality for many, many in the world, many who've never heard the name of Christ and people that we know as well who do not believe in him. They're already under wrath and unless they repent, they will experience God's wrath for all eternity. You've heard me say before, friends, there's so many wrong thoughts about hell hell is not the absence of God. Hell is not a party. Hell is the presence of God and all of his holiness and his wrath. When you're backed into a corner with nowhere to go and no mediator between you and God, hell is not the absence of God. It's rather the full manifestation of the wrath of God with no escape for all eternity. But with that, friends, number four here, God is slow to execute his wrath. One of God's attributes that we've not talked about much this semester is God is a patient God. And there's a whole thing we can explore on that, but Here's you a definition of God's patience. God's patience is that power of control which God exercises over himself, causing him to bear with the wicked and forbear so long in punishing them. The patience of God is that excellency which causes him to sustain great injuries without immediately avenging himself. And friends, apart from the patience of God, you and I would be struck dead the first time we sinned as a newborn baby, because we're born with that sin nature. But God is a patient God. He has not treated us as our sins. Or he's been patient so that we repent. I love Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious. And says, he's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. Yes, God is a God who will bring about wrath on all the non-believers, but he's slow to execute that wrath. He's slow to that anger. Why? Because Romans 2.4 four. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness, his forbearance, his patience, all these words mean the same thing, is meant to lead you to repentance. And so God is a God, yes, who executes his wrath, but he's slow to do that, giving people opportunities to repent. That leads to number five here. God relents from his wrath when people repent. God relents from his wrath when people Repent now. Go all the way back to one of the beginning attributes we studied some 12 weeks ago. We talked about the big word was the immutability of God that God does not change. If you were here that week, one of the things we wrestle with is what happens then when God says, I'm going to destroy you, and put my wrath on you, and the people repent. And he goes, Now I'm not. Was God changing? No. One of the things we saw was when God brings these prophecies of judgment, they're conditional. They're conditioned upon people not repenting. But if people meet the condition of repentance, then God relents from that wrath. So when people repent, God forgives. Justice is satisfied and the wrath no longer comes. You see this spelled out in Scripture. Sometimes this prophecy is implied and not directly said, but there's many places it's directly said. For example, Psalm 72. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation. How often? Every day day. Okay, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, there's a condition, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. So that's a picture of God's judgment to come. But notice that condition, if a man does not repent. So if a man does repent, God puts his sword up, so to speak here with this imagery here. God relents when people repent This is the very thing that made Jonah so mad in the story of Jonah. In Jonah 3 and 4, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now, this is unrighteous anger. Just make sure we're clear on that. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I have made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are gracious, God, and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So Jonah uses scripture to argue with God, saying, God, I knew if I told people to repent and they repented, you would relent, and I don't want them to repent, I want them to burn. You know, and so Jonah's dealing with his own heart issues before God because he understood that yes, God is a God of wrath, but that God repents or God relents when people repent. We even see a glimpse of this in 1 Thessalonians for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised with it, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Notice they were delivered from the wrath not because they deserved it, but because they had repented. They had turned from their idols to God. That is the hope for us You turn to page 6. This is the big truth for us to rejoice in. In Christ, we do not have to fear God's wrath. Jesus bore it for us. Now, I don't have it on your handout, but you've heard me say it before, and it's such an important truth. I probably should have put it on there. But I've mentioned it before God does not ever forgive sin, He only forgives sinners, okay? God does not ever forgive sin, He forgives sinners. Every sin, will be punished. There's no sweeping a sin on the road. There's no God winking at a sin. It's okay. God never once has forgiven a sin. He only forgives sinners by taking their sin and putting it on Christ and then pouring out his wrath on Christ instead of on the sinner. So God forgives sinners, not sin. Every sin is dealt with. Why? Because God is a holy God and he must punish every sin. Like we saw earlier, it's a divine perfection. Romans 5 here. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God, friends, we are saved in Christ from the wrath. Why? Because the wrath was already put on Christ. God's wrath didn't go away. Christ bore it in our place. For if while we were we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And so, friends, the hope for us is not that God relents from wrath, but rather his wrath was put on Christ instead of on us, and so we never have to fear it. Ephesians 2, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now we've said this before, friends, we are born not good who get corrupted by environment. We are born sinners. We are born when a baby comes out, the baby's already under the wrath of God because we have offended God. We are born with a sin nature. We sin because we're sinners, we don't, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we come out of the mother's womb with a sin nature already in us. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But notice this, these two incredible words of the Bible, but God. Amen. This impossible situation for us, born sinners deserving wrath, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love of which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 1 Thessalonians 5, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Friends, this is part of our job as a church, and we will talk about this in your small groups tonight, our responsibility to encourage each other with the gospel, to remind each other that we're not under wrath, but we're under grace, and to build each other up with this truth that we now have salvation from the wrath of God. In the Romans chapter 3, we looked at part of this earlier, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine, here's again, forbearance, His patience, He's passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be, and here's this great phrase, the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That to me is one of the most incredible truths of Scripture. God is the just and the justifier. That he in no ways compromises his justice when he forgives us. He in no ways compromises holiness when he forgives us. Rather, all the wrath that we deserve is not done away with. It's put on Christ. And Christ bears it for us. And all of Christ's righteousness is now given to us. So God is not an unjust God. His justice has been satisfied in Christ. So he can be the just and the justifier of the ones who have faith in Jesus. That leads us to a big question. Is wrath a communicable attribute? You know, two big categories of attributes. There's incommunicable ones that God does not share with us that are unique to him, like he's omnipresent, will never be omnipresent. But there's attributes that he shares with us, communicable attributes, like God's love or God's holiness. He says, be holy as I am holy. Love one another as I have loved you. So there's communicable attributes. Is wrath a communicable attribute? Yes, with qualifications, okay? Big qualifications. Wrath in our typical experience is sinful for us. Most, I would say 99% of our expressions of wrath and anger are not what we're talking about with God, okay? That's why in Ephesians 4, we're told to let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So most of my experience of anger is not godly anger. It's simple anger. Probably most of your experience of anger is not godly anger, sinful anger. Same thing, with wrath here. And that's something we have to be careful with. There are times we can experience righteous anger, but it so quickly turns sinful in our human hearts here. So yes, there are two ways that wrath is a communicable attribute. Number one, we can feel righteous anger towards evil, injustice, and sin. So again we have to be careful because it can go sinful real quick, but there is a righteous anger we can feel towards evil injustice and sin. Hebrews one, this is not about this is about Jesus here in Hebrews one but it shows us what we can be like. Uh, The Father says to Jesus, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So Jesus models for us that we should love righteousness. We should hate wickedness. We can feel a righteous anger against sin and against innocent people being hurt by people's sin, but we have to guard our hearts because very quickly that righteous anger very quickly goes towards sinful anger. And the second way wrath is communicable is we can support God-given authority and strive for justice for the oppressed. Friends, this is a hard thing for us because we can feel righteous anger towards sin, but God has not given us an authority to go punish those who have sinned. That's the role of the government. So we can support God-given authorities. We can celebrate when justice comes to the oppressed. We can strive and work for justice for the oppressed. I love how Romans describes this for us. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, But to bad, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God. Notice this, this is of the government, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And so we can support God-given authorities to see justice happen. Now in light of all that, friends, page 7 How should God's wrath affect us? This is a true part of God's character. How should it shape us as his people? Four suggestions. Number one, it should lead us to worship. You may be going, huh? That's probably our normal response. We normally don't think of, I'm going to meditate on God's wrath and it's going to lead me to Worship. That's why I have yet to find a good worship song about the wrath of God, apart from in Christ alone, where it talks about the wrath of God was satisfied. You don't find this much, but this truth of the wrath of God should lead us to worship because God has freed us from this. We are serving a holy God. Hebrews twelve. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The reality of God's holiness and justice and wrath should be something that drives us to our knees in worship of God's greatness. I love how Matt Chandler says it. So we have to feel the weight of God's severity because without feeling the weight of his severity, we won't know the weight of his kindness. We won't be able to worship him and him alone. Worship of him is why we were created. Friends, the more we understand the wrath of God and how he's freed us from it, the more that should drive us to thankfulness and worship and all that we will never have to experience that. Number two, it should lead us to seek his grace to walk in holiness. It should lead us to seek his grace to walk in holiness. Friends, you've seen this text many times from me, but 1 Peter 1. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. This is written, you shall be holy because for I am holy. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Friends, the reality is if we understand the wrath of God, we see how God views sin, and that should help us see how God views our sin, that Christ paid for on the cross. The reality of the fact that we're not under wrath should not drive us to tolerate our sin. It should help us realize how much God hates our sin and to realize Christ gladly bore it for us, so that should lead us to hate our sin, not to excuse our sin. And A.W. Pink says it so well. The wrath of God is a perfection of the divine character upon which we need to frequently meditate again friends I don't think we do that very often but we need to first that our hearts may be duly impressed by God's detestation of sin we are ever prone to regard sin lightly to gloss over its hideousness to make excuses for it now pause right there friends that is what my heart does and I'm assuming that's what your heart does as well we are ever prone to regard sin lightly to gloss over its hideousness to make excuses for it but the more we study and ponder God's abhorrence of sin and his frightful vengeance upon it, the more likely we are to realize his heinousness. Friends, us meditating on the holiness, the justice, the wrath of God is good for us because it helps us fight sin by seeking God's grace to change. Number three, this also helps, gives us hope when we suffer injustice. Friends, many of you who experience injustice in life, wrongs done to you, and it seems like the people who hurt you have gone free and there's no consequence for it. The reality is no one gets away with sin. Amen. One day, all wrongs will be made right. Even in this life, if it looks like the person who hurt you or wronged you is getting away scot-free, they will not get away scot-free. Everyone will give an accounting before the Lord. So this gives us hope when we suffer as we meditate on future judgments. Second Th- Thessalonians chapter 1. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also are suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. Friends, every sin will be dealt with. So it gives us hope in the midst of injustice. Number four, it should lead us to share Christ with non-believers. Friends, this is evangelism, this is missions, because the reality is there are over 6.4 billion people in the world who do not know the name of Jesus. The vast lostness of the world is overwhelming and there's so many people who need to hear the gospel and we need to take it to them. There's so many who are under the wrath of God who do not know who God is and we need to take the gospel to them. Friends, we should not speak of the wrath of God against unbelievers and the reality of hell without heaviness in our hearts and desire to see others delivered from God's wrath to become his worshipers. Because if we understand what we have been delivered from, how could we not want... The people have never heard the name of Jesus here, and how can we not want our family and friends to know as well? God put us here to make him known. Amen. God delivered us from his wrath so he can work through us to deliver other people from his wrath. And so part of God's kindness to us in giving us the reminder of his wrath is considering the kindness and severity of God. It should drive us to prayer for the lost. It should drive us to taking the gospel to the lost here and abroad. Second Corinthians chapter 5. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, I'm going to stop right there. We like that part, right? That's the part about us. And so we like to think about that. I've been reconciled to God. And I think we skip the next part. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Like he says, I'm saving you. I'm delivering my wrath. Now you go point others to this hope as well. There's no period there. There's not two sentences. There's one linked idea. He has rescued us so that we glorify him and we make him known. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. It means it's all his work not counting their trespasses against them, and this is an entrusting to us. That's a serious thing. The holy God has entrusted to me and entrusted to you this message of reconciliation. Therefore, what do we conclude with that? We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. It's not our story to tell. It's God's story. He appeals through us as we open our mouths and share with the nonbelievers. So Paul says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So this truth of God's wrath should lead us to worship. It should lead us to longing for holiness and seeking grace. It should help us have hope when we face injustice. It should lead us to evangelism and missions. So as we go to our small group, some things that, this is more here that you can talk about probably tonight, but <coughs> I give you a quote we read earlier from Pink. Now, it'd be fun to talk about, why are we more prone to think about God's love than his wrath? But then what happens is if we only think about God's love and we don't think about his wrath, what is lost? What happens to us? Second of all, the wrath of God is a part of his divine perfection. It's good. So how is God's wrath good? Should we love the fact that God has got a wrath? And how do we worship God for his wrath? That may be a fun question to wrestle with. How do we worship God in response to that attribute? Number three, how does thinking about God's wrath help us worship him? How does it change how we pray? How does it help us fight sin? How does it help us when we face injustice? How does it help us share Jesus with the lost? This is an attribute that's not just a theoretical attribute to sit around in a coffee shop how does this change our daily lives as we meditate on the wrath of God? Number four, God's wrath is communicable. In what ways is it wrong for us to imitate his wrath? And in what ways is it right for us to? Number five, we've seen many texts. We've looked at a ton tonight about God's wrath. What other accounts in the Bible you know of where you see God's wrath displayed? And then finally, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I read this earlier. But this is to where we're instructed to encourage one another. With these words, this connection between we've been delivered from the wrath of God, now encourage each other. So, how practically do we do that? How do we remind each other of the wrath of God in a way that builds each other up? So, just a minute, we're going to dismiss. I want to pray for us first. Just as a reminder, the couples couples go to room one in the gym building across the breezeway, ladies' room two, and the guys who will be in room four. But let me pray for us before we dismiss. God, you are a God who is worthy. You alone are holy. You alone are perfect. You alone are all glorious. God, you've shown us your nature. Thank you for showing us that you are a wrathful God. And I pray as we wrestle with this attribute that's very different than what we typically think about, that you would use this to stir our hearts in awe and wonder of you you use this to stir our hearts with a burden for the lost to make you known that you stir our hearts to want to worship you more stir our hearts to want to pray more to know you better to fight sin in our life father i pray that this attribute as we think about in our groups tonight and the week ahead would drive us to our knees and drive us to a deeper intimacy with you so have your way in our discussions let them be god-honoring and let them build one another up as we encourage each other with the truth of scripture we ask in jesus name amen well, god